0: Welcome to On Politics, I'm Dr. Eric Morrow. Professor of Political Science at Tarleton State, and we're glad that you are joining us today for another episode of On Politics. You know, we're right here each week, Sundays at noon on KTRL 90.5 FM, stream at tarletonradio.com. And of course, you can catch us after the show airs on SoundCloud. That's On Politics with Eric Morrow, or wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, we uh, also have a Facebook page, and on that page, we post interesting and related articles with the focus on providing you more information about the critical issues that we discuss on the show. So to get into today's show, of course, we're all seeing the increase in numbers related to COVID in terms of hospitalizations and and deaths uh, across the nation and really ongoing around the world in terms of this challenging pandemic. And of course, we've on this show, we've given a lot of, of, of attention from various facets uh, to the pandemic, focusing on its impact on education, uh, impact on the economy and looking at some of the, the issues that businesses and, and others have had to deal with, as well as a number of the public policy issues related to government and on the local, state and federal level and trying to address this. We've also given attention to the public health aspect of this, the, the challenges both to health care, the challenges with the vaccination process, uh, just a number of different facets of this and trying to look at the demands that this has placed on our public health system and on healthcare in general. And so we're turning back to that today and welcoming uh, Dr. David Blocker. Uh, Dr. B- uh, Blocker is a preventative medicine physician in Granbury, Texas. Uh, he received his medical degree from the University of Texas Medical Branch and has been in practice for over 25 years. Uh, He specializes in aerospace medicine, public health, general preventative medicine, and is experienced in wound care, hyperbarics, occupational medicine, aerospace medicine, public health, preventative medicine, and exposure to the disasters of war. And I, we're welcoming Dr. Blocker in his role as the Hood County Public Health uh, Authority and the medical advisor for the city of Granbury uh, to have a discussion about where we are with COVID and what are some of the current challenges that we're looking at uh, with the increases we're seeing, the vaccination process and so forth. So welcome today to the show, Dr. Blocker.
1: Thank you very much, Dr. Morrow.
0: Well, first of all, I think one of the things anytime I have uh, public health officials or people on is to talk about what is public health and what do we do in that area because uh, it is an area that seems to be, for many people, uh, not not necessarily familiar to them. Uh, We've given the way that we do health care in the state, but our public health system has a major role in a number of different areas. And I just wanted you to share with our listeners before we kind of jump into the, the crisis at hand, uh, what you do and the, and the work that you do and what is critical about what our, our public health uh, areas and, and, and offices and programs uh, provide to the people of the state.
1: Okay, no, absolutely, happy to, happy to share. <clears throat> so the interesting thing about public health is that public health is really really focused on most of the things that happen outside of the doctor's office and outside of the hospital. Uh, public health is the idea that we want to promote and protect the health of folks wherever they wherever they live. You know and that's, that's as individuals, that's as families, that's, that's as communities, that's as workplaces. And so uh, you know normally you see a doctor because you are sick or you have an injury. Or you have an illness that requires long-term care. Well, the core idea between, behind preventive medicine and public health is to help to look at those factors as individuals and as families and communities that would contribute to negatively to health and to help to prevent or find ways to uh, minimize the impact of those things. And that's exactly why, um, although, although coronavirus uh, right now has gotten brought so much attention to public health, it's really a small facet of all the things that happen in public health that mostly generally happen in the background has to do with with food and water safety every restaurant we eat at we don't typically we don't typically go back in the kitchen and and inspect the kitchen individually we just trust that i'm going to be able to have a healthy meal when i go to a local restaurant but every one of those restaurants has been inspected from a public health standpoint for safety sanitation food temperatures water safety etc well by the same token you know, public health uh, relating to vaccinations, immunizations, things like that are part of what we tend to take for granted in our communities most of the time. But uh, again, childhood immunizations, work-related protections and things are just part uh, and parcel of the background of our uh, modern society. And so uh, when, when we get extra attention brought to things like the pandemic, it, you know, like I said, we, we, we tend to focus all just on one aspect, but miss that larger big picture. Uh, so about 80% of any individual's health is determined by lifestyle choices, things we choose to do or not to do healthy behavior, healthy activity, diet things we put in our body or choose not to put in our bodies. Um, and, and again, those things all impact us at the time when it comes to, well, now we have an issue with blood pressure or diabetes or an illness such as COVID or influenza or any other respiratory or, or gastrointestinal illness. So uh, personally, I think you'd asked me to share a little bit. Uh, as you said, I've been a doctor for 25 years. Most of that time I've spent in the military working uh, you know, around, uh, around the United States and, and around the globe. Uh, with various uh, public health entities and organizations, uh, both both in communities and states, and even in in other countries, it from a deployment setting. Uh, but uh, I, I received my my master's in public health in the year 2000, which included a lot of training in epidemiology and biostatistics, and and uh, organizational management and preventive uh, behaviors. And then I received my preventive medicine board certification in 2003. So again, I've spent my entire adult life working in the fields of preventive medicine, public health, and uh, with the military as a public health emergency officer everywhere I went, which really dealt with how do we plan and prepare to deal with the public health issues um, that, that we can control and um, in, in, in our local communities around the globe. So we spent a lot of time about a decade ago looking very closely at avian influenza, where we developed community plans, Organizational plans, military plans, and all those were integrated with the various communities and states and, and places that we were at. Uh, what's interesting is that is that although we we did some exercises on those with various emergency management teams and things like that, we really didn't have to use those types of plans until over a decade later when coronavirus hit and uh, you know it came to our communities the first part of 2000. And we found that we were dusting these things off and sorting them out, hey, 10 years ago or so is the last time we looked at this. And now how does that actually apply when it comes to testing individuals, when it comes to what's appropriate as far as isolation and quarantine of, of individuals, if they appear to be sick and it might be coronaviruses is rapidly spreading at the time, we were still developing tests. And then obviously we didn't have a vaccine for about a year the time all that started. And so all those things are, are things where we look at public health planning, emergency management planning across any community. But then when the rubber hits the road is how effective are those plans? How relevant and recent are those plans? And how quickly can we actually execute those things? And so again, first part of last year when coronavirus broke out 2020 in our area uh, not only did we, we have to have to break those things out, but we had to look at how we're set up to manage public health across Texas and across our communities. And that's the other background piece I think is very relevant to coronavirus or anything else that, that the public needs to understand. The state of Texas is divided into different regions. Uh, here in North Texas, we, we region two, three, where we have one doctor who works for the state of Texas to cover 49 different counties. That's Dr. Joel Massey, and, and, and as you said, I know you've met with him before and had an opportunity to work with him on different issues. So that doctor is the only one that's hired by the state to be a public health authority over 49 counties. Uh, and in this case, that covers all the Metroplex, uh, again, the Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex is, is one of the four largest metropolitan areas in the United States, one of the largest in the world, over seven and a half million people. And so all the things that are involved with big cities and large populations, including travel and commerce and, and medical issues and spread of disease, all those things are very relevant because we're right here in that area. And then when you know we're in those outlying areas. But then the state is also in that same region, covers north to Wichita Falls and out west to Abilene. And of course, we lay here in between for my county and Hood County, of course your county, Erath County. And so the things that happen in the Metroplex, to some degree kind of trickle down out further to rural areas. And I think we'll talk a little bit later, a little bit more about rural impacts of disease transmission like, but again, that's very important. We look at who are our neighbors. So most of our public health uh, responses in smaller rural communities uh, that don't have health departments like mine, uh, like mine in Hood County, we we rely heavily upon the state response and regional responses. In other words, Hood County, um, some of our other smaller counties around, well, do we really need a health department if we've got a 300-member health department in Tarrant County just a few miles away? Well, depending on what your issue is and depending on how long you can wait for support, the answer may be yes or no on that particular issue as we've seen played out with coronavirus. So, um, again, you, have, you really have a, a huge difference between these large metropolitan areas where you have millions of people together in a large city with lots of infrastructure and support that's, that's supported by both state and local taxes and other infrastructure. And then when we get to Hood County, our infrastructure that we pay for on a regular basis just includes some, some issues with water sanitation and water safety, a little bit on the food sanitation side. And then there is one nurse who works uh works for the state who supports five counties out here, including Hood and, and Erath and some of the others. And that's really the only state regular resource that's in place. And that that nurse works under Dr. Massey uh for the you know for the state to make sure that things like childhood immunizations, tuberculosis, uh, and other disease management programs are at least um have a way to get back to other state support, but on a day-to-day basis. Um, our county relies very heavily on our local hospital, um, on our local medical providers and on our various other uh, community organizations, nonprofit organizations that support the, the uh, health and, and lifestyle of, of, of individuals, um, volunteer organizations and, and uh, volunteer medical clinics to help with indigent care and things like that, where the very, very small footprint, um, that is actually paid for by the state or by the, by the county on a regular basis. So when again, that's very important when you look at infrastructure as we grow our communities away from these metropolitan areas, I think is very, very important as we're building roads, as we're building water systems, as we're building sanitation systems, as we're building airports, we really need to look at building public health infrastructure as well. So uh, right now, like I said, we have folks that work water safety and a little bit of the food stuff. We rely on the state and and the surrounding big counties with health departments for um, a lot of the day-to-day coordination. And then we have individuals like myself who, again, although I've done this for over 25 years, I do not have a funded position. Uh, I'm not paid by the county or the state to be the local health authority. I volunteer my time uh, amidst the other things that I do as as a physician. To ensure that when we're dealing with issues with schools or health of the community or things like this pandemic, that we have accurate and timely information given to the leadership in the county, the city, the community, the school districts, et cetera, so they can make the best decisions based upon the science and the medical info that we have today as relates to their ability to keep schools open, keep businesses open, et cetera. So that's that's kind of the background, that's kind of the, the layout, and that's kind of the place where where I live and try to provide my best support.
0: Well, thank, thank you, that really goes in depth in trying to help us understand uh, public health and its role. I, th- I think one of the things, and this is the reason why I give attention to these uh, issues and areas on the show, is that uh, I think uh, many people are, are not fully aware of the level of coordination uh, that goes on here, uh, and that the, the the government, state government, and county government, cities as well, are very much involved in uh, in terms of, of broader issues like this. You, you know, you mentioned everything from immunizations to education, and then of course what we've been dealing with with COVID. On on that on that part of it, and in your role, do you? Uh, I, I know you. You know it's it, it's an advisory liaison role with the, with some of these other entities. You know, working on behalf of the state and under the direction of Dr. Massey and so forth. But on, on that that part of it, do you also kind of coordinate with other healthcare providers that are in, say, say in the private sector that are engaged? And again, I'm, I'm trying to kind of emphasize how critical a role this is uh, because when we look at, at medical care. You've got a lot of people out there doing it. You've got a lot of indi- individual doctors, and, and which you're, you're one as well. Uh, but, but the critical issue here is that coordination that is provided by public health within the state. And I'm just wondering how, how beneficial is that to you and your private practice as well as other physicians? And, and how does that actually work uh, in terms of trying to keep them informed, bring them together? deal with issues like what we've seen over the past year with COVID?
1: Yeah, that's, that's a great question. I appreciate that. And, and you're right. Um, about, about 80% of my time is spent in, in other clinical practice and then um, and then, of course, the rest of, of uh, afternoons and nights and weekends and things have been absorbed uh, or, or pulling away from scheduled clinics to to go to county commissioners meetings and, and various uh, various things. So, no, it's, it's it's really important because that collaboration is really, really how it works. Um, and and I'll, I'll say even in larger communities where they where they do have large health departments and they do have physicians who are full time. And nurses and administrators and public health specialists and and epidemiologists who work this full time, still at the end of the day, the rubber hits the road at the individual patient encounter, uh, either at a doctor's office or an urgent care center or in a hospital, um, or for that matter, with uh, nurses and, and staff at our elder care centers, school nurses and schools. I mean, where are the people and where are they most likely to present with symptoms that may or may not be coronavirus or influenza or other things that could spread to others? And how do we protect that larger community from spreading those illnesses when it comes to things like this? Right. So that's really, really important, that collaborative effort. And and sometimes it it has to do with, again, as I said before, timely information, timely and accurate information to those decision makers in those various areas. And so that happens at a number of levels. Um, here in the United States, obviously, we have the Centers for Disease Control, um, who are responsible for coordination of all public health issues across the states and with the World Health Organization uh, globally. And then that rolls down to the Texas Department of State Health Services and then local county authorities like myself um, or local health departments um, that are, that have a larger piece of infrastructure. And then at that point, um, you know, we have to have timely uh, mechanisms for coordination with the healthcare agencies. In this case, a uh, case of point in Hood County, we have one hospital and that's Lake Granbury Medical Center. Uh, but we also have have a large physicians group that encompasses approximately 80 percent of all our primary care physicians and specialists in town. And then we have another handful of various doctors offices, like I said, nursing homes and various centers that have have medical staff. And so we've had routine uh, meetings and coordination specifically for coronavirus, but we we have a, a baseline um, communication tools that we use from a standpoint of emergency management and medical issues across the community that we use. So we start with the big ones. We start with the hospital and the surgery center, the largest uh, medical staff groups, and make sure that they have any guideline dates, uh, updates on coronavirus testing, immunizations, and treatment that are, are being made available to us uh, through, the, through the state or, or across the community. And then um, we kind of narrow it down from there. Uh, on the school side and on the side of, of uh, the different school districts, both public and private, again, we use you know, email distro groups and, and, and phone recall groups to reach out and communicate to them. And uh, quite frankly, when it comes to uh, you know, our, our public school systems, They've been really good at about having having robust communication on that and with the school boards. When it comes to the private schools, it really is is a lot of that's been up to them. We can provide information to them, and some are very welcoming and very open. Others others will um, use. Kind of those cultural differences. Well, heck, if, if we wanted to follow all the rules, then we'd be a public school too. So we're a private school and we're going to do whatever we think is best, right? And I, I can't control that. I don't try to control that, but I try to ensure that at least they have the same information and guidelines as the others do that are, you know, part of the public system. And the same with our chamber of commerce and our businesses around the community. Again, emails, websites, uh, Facebook. A county website, a city of Granbury website. Those are all tools that we use on a regular basis uh, for communication, even, you know, um, and then obviously we've ramped those things up throughout the pandemic.
0: So speaking of the pandemic, uh, we were all thought we were making some progress here and all of a sudden we see numbers going back up in terms of infection rates, hospitalizations and so forth. I know a lot of this is being attributed to uh, the COVID D variant, which, uh, uh, I know you can explain this a lot better than me, but it, it, I kind of equate it to like our flu. Flu manifests itself in different ways, uh, or do you have different variations of it, and we're seeing this with COVID as it's uh, changing. What what really what's kind of happening here uh, in the in the mix of things, at least in terms of what the data is showing us of, of what actually is going on, and 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 especially. You know, I know we're looking at it nationally, state, or so forth. But even in our local areas, because there is a difference in, as we saw throughout the pandemic, between rural areas, at least in managing this, and and then also what happened was happening in urban centers and so forth.
1: Right. So, so obviously, we've got a lot of different places we can look at for this data, um, and so it's really important. Especially in our modern age, where again there's so many different websites or interest groups or things that you can follow, um, it, it's really important. Kind of where do I get my data and and who do I trust? Right, because if I have a particular worldview or perspective on these things, well, I can find someone that will agree with that perspective, regardless of uh, of whether or not it kind of fits with what I would uh, what I would support from a standpoint as a you know again a physician who's done this for for 25 years. Um, so my go-to are Centers for Disease Control, the Texas Department of State Health Services website, which uh, both of those have trackers um, of, of the, uh, the current case rates, information on vaccination, information on hospitalizations and deaths. Um, and those things are you know, filtered up. And of course, at every level from the local community, county, state to the federal level, obviously there's a time lag in the in the communication there and how quickly we're able and how accurate that information is or, you know, as far as what date you're looking at there. And so so part of my role here is I monitor this on a weekly basis, coordinate back with our county emergency management team who are full time county employees who are there to deal with all things emergency related, including public health disasters, natural disasters, flooding, etc. And so those are our key folks who we've, we've made a point to ensure that all communication, all official communication is coordinated uh, through our county emergency management folks, then back to the city, back to Chamber of Commerce, back to others, et cetera, so that there's a consistent voice and consistent messaging on that. And that's really important for, I think, for any community, because these are the numbers we can validate. These are the facts we can validate. So, so when it comes to coronavirus uh, testing, when it comes to coronavirus vaccination and when it comes to coronavirus infections hospitalizations and deaths um, all those things all those things are interrelated um, because you can't really i don't believe you can really understand one without understanding a little bit more about the other so first we need to understand that coronavirus is a respiratory virus uh, of the sars uh, sars virus family right sars cov um, that's been around, there are, there are literally hundreds of viruses that cause respiratory illness, but a lot of those are, you know, again, the coronaviruses are influenza vir- viruses, adenoviruses, et cetera, that all cause varying degrees of respiratory illness, but they all spread through similar ways by people breathing uh, on one another, coughing, sneezing, forceful expulsion of those, those droplets from, you know, from the respiratory system that then carry a virus from from one person's respiratory tract to another, and so when it comes down to it, you know the science behind social distancing and mask wear is regardless of what respiratory issue I may have or not have, if I stay more than six feet away from other people, um, you know we we've we've done modeling, uh, numerous you know places around the U.S. around the globe have done modeling long before coronavirus came out that show that if someone is coughing, sneezing, singing, playing an instrument any kind of forceful expiration of breath, how far those particles will go if they're not blocked in some fashion. And so that's really the key behind the six-foot distancing. It's nothing that we came up with specific to coronavirus. Keeping six feet away from others will generally ensure that any virus particles or any other respiratory particles don't get to that other person. And then when it comes to the particles that settle out on the surfaces around us, that's why we talk about cleaning surfaces, right? Desktops, paperwork, items that are going to be shared by children in a child care center because... Again, the, the, the more recently those particles were spit or <laughs> exhaled upon, then there may be some ability to touch that or t- put that in your mouth or whatever, give those particles. But really it's, it's primarily breathing on one another, right? And that's influenza. That's, that's coronavirus. That's adenovirus, et cetera. So then when it comes to mask wear, the reason we say, well, look, if, if we don't know for sure whether you're sick or not, We don't know for sure who the people around you, what their status is going to be. And you're in a situation where you are in a public place, going to and from a grocery store, having to do work at a certain building or office or what have you. You're going to be passing through common hallways, sharing bathrooms, things like that, where you don't know who is just in there sneezing, coughing, whatever. Then, the best next best thing you can do is wear some type of mask, facial covering that would then reduce the likelihood of particles either getting out of your mouth to them or from their mouth to yours, right? And that's really the, all this, the, what the science is about. And so, uh, today, you know, you and I, we're not going to spend a lot of time talking about the specifics of types of masks or things, but I just want to address those basic issues that there's some reason and some science behind that. Um, and when it comes to not just my personal rights as an individual or my rights for my children going to school, but what is my responsibility to the larger community and how do we stay active? How do we stay engaged as a community to do the things we want to do without being afraid of some virus we can't see that we don't know, you know about from, from an individual next to us? Um, that also coronavirus, the thing that makes coronavirus stand out or these SARS viruses stand out is we have seen them prior to this coronavirus pandemic around the globe we saw regional outbreaks of SARS viruses, you know, over the last uh, 15 years or so in the Middle East and in Asia, where there were massive numbers of infections and hospitalizations and deaths regionally prior to this, uh, uh, you know, coronavirus, SARS-CoV-19. Uh, uh, making it out of that regional area and becoming a global pandemic. And so when it comes to modeling and projections and what can we do and, and what do we know about this, the last time we had a worldwide pandemic was back in, at the end of World War I. 1918 you know, it was known as the Spanish flu that effectively kind of ended World War One, and with Spanish flu, there were, there were five major waves that went around the globe over a two and a half year period. So when we study the history of epidemiology, when we study the history of pandemics, that's the last example we have. And that didn't happen in any of our lifetimes. Obviously, we have a lot better communication these days. We have a lot better medical care. We have a lot better capability to do uh, medication and vaccination and support to individuals. But when it comes to if people are breathing next to one another and sharing a very infectious virus like coronavirus or the 1918 influenza, well, then that's kind of what you see natural behavior uh, working its way around the globe. And the largest, the largest impact on preventing deaths and illnesses in, in the 1918 influenza really went back to those social controls. Did they close things down? Did they limit activity to mandatory, you know, required activities? And, and how did they protect themselves when they did, you know, get out and get into public gatherings? And across the U.S., there's a lot of great data. If you study the 1918, um, you know, pandemics, that cities who opened everything up went back to business as usual for Fourth of July. They had more waves of, of influenza going through at that time than the cities that continued to limit activity and limit public gatherings. And so that's the historical data that we have. And, you know, we, we can learn a lot from history. I mean, we've seen similar things play out in our communities with, with uh, coronavirus um, over this last year and a half.
0: Well, going back to the like you it brought up the pandemic in the early 20th century is uh, helping people understand that that, that this may be a pattern that we go through right as, as this thing changes we're seeing it's not a one and done thing as we try to understand the I guess the biology of this and knowing that that we, we could be looking not not to be a look at this in a negative way but just understanding the science of it that, that we could be having to go through rounds of this and trying to address it in different ways, right? I mean, I think that's that's one of the, the outcomes. It may not be, but then on the other hand, if we look back and we see how flu and other viruses work, that, that we we may be having to battle with this in, in ways to protect public health, protect people uh, going forward. And, and, and I guess a little bit, you know, talking about uh, the D variant, how that kind of actually works.
1: Right, right. So, so I think yeah, we talk about the uh, relative impact on a community, part of the reason, uh, you know, uh, both, both coronavirus and these different variants, uh, we, we started with what's considered the alpha variant now. What we're seeing the majority of cases right now across the U.S. are considered to be delta variant, but there's also a lambda and a beta that are on their way around and we'll probably see more. Similar to influenza alpha and uh, influenza A and influenza B that are prevalent in our communities and around the globe, every year when they make the next year's flu shots, I mean the fact is we've just all gotten more used to it, and more and and over time, the majority of us have built up some degree of antibodies or cross protection against these various uh, variants of influenza, but still. The reason why we still get a flu shot every year or recommend a flu shot every year is because there's enough variability across those various strains of influenza where they share genetic material and change just enough to trick our body so that we still could get overwhelmed. Uh, Our our antibodies and our, our defenses of our body could still get overwhelmed. We could still get sick from influenza just from the genetic change and drift from one year to the next. So that's why we get booster flu shots or recommend a different flu shot every year because it covers all those common strains that are making their way around the globe that year. In a similar manner, as we spent all this time and energy and research around the globe and across the U.S. looking at coronavirus, we're now doing having to do the same thing. What we're calling alpha, uh, beta, uh, delta, lambda, beta variants of coronavirus is just like the genetic drift we see in flu every year. It's just happening very quickly and it's getting a lot more attention. But it's, this is this is basic virology, basic epidemiology, the basic things that we've done for decades to help protect against flu, and I think we'll see the same thing, um, you know, as far as requiring you know boosters or updated shots, just like we do with flu shots each year, to help protect against the newest strains of of, of coronavirus. So again, I want to combat fear. I want to combat concern in in from terms of this is what we can say today. This is what we do know about it, and so people can be more informed and make their best decisions for themselves and their family and their businesses and community. So um the, the what we do know about the delta variant of coronavirus is that the current testing that we do to look for coronavirus infection will find any of the known variants of coronavirus. You know, the rapid tests and things like that. Uh, we can safely safely agree within the same the same uh, false positive, false negative rates. you know, they're in the 90s, right? That if a test says you have coronavirus, it really doesn't matter what variant you have. You're, you know, the test will say yes or no, as far as a rapid test for re- being recently exposed and, and being ill with coronavirus. Now, the Delta variant is more infectious than the Alpha that we saw in the first place, which in it turn, in itself, is more infectious than the flu is, which is why it's been, you know, had such a rapid impact across our community. And uh, still, the majority of cases of these variants of coronavirus, the majority of cases, um, you know, 80, 80% or so are going to have mild illness, mild, mild symptoms. Uh, the Delta variant, you're more likely to have headache as the first symptom rather than, rather than fever or respiratory, uh, symptoms, but still they falls within that scope of what we've been looking at for the last year and a half. Um, the Delta virus is easier to share amongst unvaccinated individuals. Now, when it comes to people who have been vaccinated against coronavirus we know that the current vaccines that are being used whether it's the whether it's the moderna whether it's the pfizer whether it's the johnson johnson single shot those are all somewhere between 90 and 97% effective against the alpha variant But what I understand looking at the data this week from the CDC and other sources is that it it seems that those same immunizations that we've all had available to us for the most of the past year are also somewhere between 85 and 90 to 95 percent effective against Delta variant as well. So the good news is if you get immunized or if you've already been immunized this year, then you are generally going to be as safe as can be from the delta variant, just like you were from the other variants that were in place at the time you got the immunizations. That's great news for the community. The other thing is, if you've been vaccinated, then it's it's been proven that the viral load for folks who for folks who are overwhelmed, maybe they didn't take you know they're part of that three to five percent who still got sick, even being vaccinated. Or maybe they had um, other health issues um, from their immune system standpoint or whatever, where they didn't didn't get a great um, antibody development or what have you, even from the vaccine. So even if you do get sick from the Delta variant, if you've been vaccinated, your viral load is going to be around around uh, 40 percent of what it would be if if you hadn't been vaccinated at all. In other words, you're much less likely to get sick or ill from the virus uh from the delta variant and you're much less likely to spread it to others if you've been protected. If and that makes sense, right? If you already have antibodies, even if you even if you get overwhelmed and and have some symptoms and get a little bit sick for you know for a few days, you're most likely to recover much more quickly and much less likely to make other people sick. When we look at hospitalizations across Dallas Fort Worth and in Hood County, um and I don't know the specifics on Stephenville, but again when we look at the DFW statistics and the Hood County statistics I can speak to I know personally that out of dozens of hospitalizations that we've had recently since 4th of July well actually since the end of May but particularly after 4th of July in Hood County we have uh, less than 5% of those hospitalizations have been, for covid have been in folks who have, have been vaccinated or protected in some way so that means that you know again uh, again um you know 19 out of 20 cases are folks who chose not to be vaccinated didn't want to be vaccinated, couldn't be vaccinated for whatever reason. Um, it's still primarily adults, uh, but but again, um, the vaccines have been available now for anyone 12 and older. And we can talk a little bit more about those recommendations. But the fact is, the overwhelming majority, over 95% of our cases across Dallas, Fort Worth, and in our smaller rural counties, are still uh, of COVID. Are still in individuals who are unvaccinated. In other words, if you get vac- a vaccine vaccine You are you are much more safe against not only catching coronavirus or spreading coronavirus, but also from having to deal with any of those those horrible complications uh, requiring hospitalization, life support or death.
0: So some of the focus on the challenges with vaccination have been related to uh, I've seen two things. One is communication, right? People understanding the science behind this. And there's a lot of misinformation out there and so forth. But then there's others like, so we're in a rural area, uh, which, you know, the impact uh, in a rural area. I mean, one of the things we've talked about uh, being, you know, at Tarleton, where I am, was when you have an area that responds to it, as everyone did with kind of closing down and and all the things that happened early on in this. And of course, the social distancing and the mask and, and so on um, uh, many elderly until a vaccine was available, staying home and so forth. But, but it, it uh, it, it, it to the, those, that challenge in our area, uh, would seem to be that some people would say, well, I don't, I'm not around that many people. I'm not engaged with that many people. Uh, we're, we're, we're much more spread out here. I don't have to, don't need to get a, a vaccine. I have some concerns about it, those kinds of things. Um, I think on that part, it kind of goes back, and I'm just uh, saying this in my own thinking on this and, and reflecting over time that it, it, it goes back to that community aspect of it uh, as well, is that, you know, we, we, we never know how and when this is going to spread in terms of who you come in contact with. You know, you see things all the time, but there's, there's still that, that percentage of people who are, if they get the, the virus and, and even if they're not vaccinated, uh, could mean very serious illness and maybe maybe even death. And I think this was some of the debate that was going on back even before about masking, about social distancing was um, well, I'm, I'm not worried about it. I can get it, I could survive it, I could do this. but, but the, the attitude of okay well, but this could spread to other people who may not have that ability. And so I'm, I'm wondering how this factors in, especially you know in, in, in your work as well, and trying to to communicate to people, uh, how critical this is—not not just for them individually, but in thinking about this. And as you mentioned early on in the interview, a community aspect of it is that this is affecting everybody. And some people it affects even even to the point of, of death because it, it affects their health so seriously that either they have to be hospitalized for an extended period of time or, or even the effects. So we're seeing. I mean, I think that's going to be studies for years to come. What are the effects of having a severe case of COVID? Uh, so I, I, I wanted to emphasize that and just to get your thoughts as we live and work in a rural area here that, that even though it, it may be different than a, an urban area, on the other hand, uh, the virus doesn't doesn't recognize that. Right. It's just, it, it's still going to impact people in in very similar ways and, and serious ways.
1: Yeah, that's that's exactly right. And I'm glad you brought that up. Right. So. So what we see uh, here in Texas and writ uh, large across the United States and even across the globe is that obviously any type of, of highly infectious uh, illness, transmissible illness like, like, like this, is, is you'll, you'll, see, you'll see waves from larger urban centers where there's more travel, where there's more commerce, where there's more activity. And people people are closer together, um, and, you know, just population density is much higher, obviously, in cities than it is in rural areas like ours. But then it kind of trickles out, right? And so those same effects get there, but there may be delays, you know, by, by weeks or sometimes months. But you still see those similar waves um, and they may be, they may be smaller but they still they still have a ripple effect further and further out from the large population centers um and and so we're no different here in small town rural Texas than any other rural area um or even more rural states you know uh, like Montana and the like you know you still see those waves come through but based on population density and how much people interact with each other there may be less impact which is great when you look at the numbers writ large it's not great if you're part of that family or part of that community or part of that church that got sick and got ill and transmitted it, right? Um, and so, um, you know, of course, we've, I think we've, at this point, we've all had very tragic or seen or heard very tragic stories about neighbors or family members alike with, uh, with just horrible outcomes of, of coronavirus. And, and a lot of folks will say, well, that person was, you know, that person was older anyway. Or that person had heart disease or lung disease anyway, or that person had cancer anyway, so they're going to die anyway. So what's the big deal that they died to COVID? Well, I'll just say that, you know, if you had lung issues that are generally well controlled with medications and, uh, you know, medical care, but then you get rapidly overwhelmed by COVID, influenza, it doesn't really matter what the, what the infection was, Well, now your life expectancy went from years to zero because now you've, you know, you've passed away from that acute illness. So again, on from a population standpoint, or when you step back and look at the numbers or, you know, look at the raw numbers, well, heck, we've only had 136 deaths in Hood County. So why do we really care? That's 136 deaths out of, you know, 65, 70,000 people. So the impact here, you know, is just as great as it is in a larger community that might have hundreds of thousands or millions. It's just proportional, right? Same with the cases, you know, we we've had we've had over, you know, 6,600 documented cases of coronavirus that we know about in Hood County. That means they've been tested. They've ended up with a positive test on the on the books. And uh, and again, like I said before, the 136th—that's that's Hood County residents. It doesn't matter where they died, if their home of record was Hood County and they died in Fort Worth in the hospital, those numbers still count back to us. Even if I didn't specifically get the details or know about that case until it came back on the the, the, the vital statistics records from the state. But uh, so so those impacts on the rural community, like I said, they they may they may seem smaller. But, but they're still proportional to the size of the community and that impact to that family and community is just as great uh, from this coronavirus outbreak. Um, where, the, where I've seen it quite largely uh, here in our community is things like churches, schools, uh, places where people normally gather, uh, social gatherings, holidays and events where, again, uh, specifically for Hood County and Granbury, um, 4th of July, General Granbury's birthday. There are certain key events that, you know, that bring a lot of tourism and a lot of extra folks into Granbury. And there are a lot of folks that maybe have a weekend home in Granbury, but they actually live and work somewhere else in the Metroplex. So so they're being more exposed to those larger groups of people and larger exposures, but then they come to Granbury to relax on the weekend and sit right next to me on the square at a restaurant on the square. So I have to be aware of that. And I have to express that level of concern. I don't say we got to shut it down, but I do recommend that we still keep those social distancing practices in mind. Maybe how many tables you have or how close together they are and whether or not you have, uh, you know, require or recommend the, you know, the workers in the restaurant or, you know, or the patrons of the restaurant to wear a mask before they sit down and share and are eating and socializing with the folks they chose to socialize with. I've got no problem with church gatherings, businesses being open, Restaurants being open. We need that. We all need that. But I think we need to be aware and need to respect our fellow, you know, our neighbors or for that matter, the people who are opening the business or running the business so we can t- partake of it and respect one another in that so they can stay open, regardless of my personal right to go to that business or wear a mask or not to wear a mask. And I think all those things, um, you know, come to the forefront in our daily activities and our daily choices that we make, even in a rural community.
0: Well, I know, I know, we need to let you go, know, but I, I have one question, one more question that I, I think is uh, uh, it relates to the public health aspect. This is is very challenging politically, which that's you know another focus, you know, in terms of the, of the show and so forth, where you're you're almost thinking post pandemic, uh, and then all of a sudden we have this uh, this resurgence and so on. Um, uh, to me, it sounds even like it could be more challenging. Where this this could be much more challenging than it was a year ago, when we were um, in the midst of, of of trying to open back up in different ways and and adjust the response to the to COVID, uh, because this has a lot more facets to it, right? With the vaccine in place and different views on that. Uh, how do, how do you see this as a as a public health? Uh, officials, someone working in that area in terms of the kinds of challenges. You mentioned it about restaurants, right? People are thinking, I want, I want to maximize now my uh, income, my what the, the profit off of my business. We're opening back up. Things are safer and so on. Uh, th- this is a very uh, challenging area to maneuver uh, it, going forward, I would think, on the public health front uh, in terms of what uh, uh, what you see needs to be maintained or done, or how we need to look at this in stages or phases, rather than it just being okay. Hey, we're we're past this,
1: right? Right. No, thank you, thank you, Doctor Morrow. You're right. It, it's it's not an all or nothing. Um, I I think uh, you know from a from a from a messaging standpoint, um, everyone's very you know everyone's very tired and tired of hearing about coronavirus. As a matter of fact, the very fact that if you label this talk on your radio program as yet another coronavirus talk with yet another, you know, public health official, you may have fewer viewers of this particular show, not because it's not important, but just because they feel like they've already heard it all and they already know everything they need to know about it. And that's a personal choice that they make, but it's it's that, that fatigue that we've seen as a community uh, with this throughout because we, we it's, it's inconvenient. It's uncomfortable. We'd like to be able to say that, hey, everything's done, declare victory, and move on, right? And and that's <laughs> that's whether we're talking a war in the Middle East or whether we're talking about a war with coronavirus, right? Hey, declare victory, move on. I'm really tired of hearing about it. Do we really still have people in Afghanistan. Do we really still have people who need to who could get sick from coronavirus? The fact is, right now we do. Um, and so it has to be a part of the ongoing narrative. It has to be worked into the routine rather than have an emergency meeting yet another emergency meeting about do we do this event or do we do this at the school or not about coronavirus it needs to be worked into the regular narrative and not specific to coronavirus in my opinion it's again coronavirus flu other respiratory illnesses or things that could spread what are the practices that we routinely put in place so we keep our folks at school we keep our businesses open we keep our churches open how do we how do we work that into our practice and so rather than throwing away all the masks And getting rid of all the social distancing signs and because we're tired of it, I think we need to modify that into our regular narrative. And when we look at things across the Middle East, um, ever since actually the SARS outbreak back in, I believe it was 2008, 2009, over a decade ago, part of the regular thing you see, if you see any videos or anything of people walking around the streets in Asia where there's, you know, everyone's crowded, there's a lot of, of public transportation and things like that. You see a lot of the people wearing masks as part of the routine. They've got decorator masks that, that match their outfit or whatever, and that's just what they do. I think there's probably going to be some aspect of that to our society going forward that should be socially accepted and not frowned upon because these folks, maybe they, maybe they have cancer or have a, are a cancer survivor. Maybe they have medical issues, and they want to make sure that they're safe so they can go do and enjoy what they want to do. Well, I, I think we should welcome that and we should recognize that as, as again, that what we're used to doing from a, a community standpoint, I think that needs to be worked in the narrative. Um, as far as our local infrastructure, I, you know, recommend that you kind of have those as regular items in school board meetings or, uh, city council meetings or chamber of commerce meetings, hey, about the next event. What do we know right now about? Is it flu season? What's going on with coronavirus or other things? And how do we need to modify these things, or at least be aware of these? And and maybe we need to make hand sanitizer available, have some masks available, put some put some recommended boundaries for folks. So again, as far as how close things are or are, are apart, whether it's chairs at a venue or whatever, and just work those things in. We made we made those similar recommendations and have are required to do that for things like our uh, judicial system. When it things like, you know, selecting juries, how many people are in a courtroom or how many people are in a community, you know, a, a a meeting that's open to the public. Well, if you block off certain seats or you you block off every other row or you do some things like that. So where you make a safe choice, the most convenient choice for folks and they have to intentionally go around that to sit closer together or to to bring a group together. Well, I think that's OK. And I think we need to look at those things across our society. And just that's just a part uh, the new normal, in my opinion, from a, from a medical recommendation standpoint. Um, and I think that's okay. School systems, I think part of your, we haven't talked specifically about schools this year, but I know in Stephenville, that was a big issue for y'all and uh, brought the health authorities and Dr. Massey in. Same thing here in the Granbury ISD, which uh, accounts for about a 10th, actually over a 10th of our population are either students or workers in the schools. So on one side, you know, hey, we we have a responsibility for our kids to be safe when they go to school. And we have a responsibility for our workers to be able to be safe teaching those students in schools. So I know Governor Abbott on the political side has made a very clear point to say our Texas educational guidelines will not require anyone to have to wear a mask in, in schools. And the mask is kind of getting the focus. Okay, got it. Legally, this is the legal limit. That doesn't change the medical recommendation. American Academy of Pediatrics, CDC, there are very clear recommendations as far as mask recommendations for the age two and older now um, are recommended to wear masks. It's recommended that COVID vaccination be, is, is available now and it should be, you know can be done for ages 12 and up. And so when it comes to keeping our kids active, being able to enjoy their school activities and all that, If, you know, I I highly encourage, you know, our school board members and our parents and folks that are that are really the key decision makers in that our teachers and like to look at those things, make an educated decision, not an emotional decision and work towards the safest thing for, again, the students and the workers and everything like that, even if it may be a little inconvenient in order of the greater good of being able to be active and and do all those activities that we all love and love to see our kids participate in and want to have the ability to go and watch our kids participate in.
0: Well, we've been talking today with Dr. David Blocker, uh, who is a physician and is also uh, the Hood County Public Health Authority and the City of Granbury Medical Advisor about COVID, about where we are right now and some of the challenges that we're facing, and also some public health guidance in terms of how we should navigate Uh, this ahead of us, and we will be continuing to give this more attention, especially as it uh, develops and looking at what decisions governments are having to make at the state, local, uh, and federal levels related to COVID and how we navigate uh, the weeks and months and possibly years ahead. Uh, Dr. Blocker, I want to thank you for joining us today. Thank you for your time and and for your Valued input uh, on this very critical topic.
1: Thank you very much, Dr. Morris. It's been my pleasure.
0: And thank you for joining us today on Politics. We're right here each week at noon on KTRL 90.5 FM. You can download us where you get your podcast, listen on SoundCloud, and also listen streaming live during the show, TarletonRadio.com. We'll look forward to being back with you again next week. radio network podcast with production from me taylor welch and me brianna blanks find more great shows by searching tarleton radio network wherever you get your podcast